Good morning, everyone. Let's, um, let's pray together and then we'll uh, look together at this next part of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. As we've just declared in these words from Philippians, we thank you for the king he is. We thank you for his humility, his service, his sacrifice. And yet we know there is now no name above his, that at the name of Jesus every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, that he is Lord. And so we pray, Father, for humble hearts as we hear your word, the word about our King, the Lord Jesus, that we would see him and that we would trust him. Amen. Well, please do uh, have uh, the 1 Samuel reading open in front of you that, that Bob read for us. And you'll see on the, the page uh, that Bob read for us, we have down to verse 26, which is where we'll be focusing. And then there are some additional verses that I will make reference to as well, just over the page. And there's also an outline of where we're heading as we look at this together. If you're joining us new this morning, we've been uh, working our way through the book of 1 Samuel, and it is a book all about the search for a leader, uh, the sort of leadership we humans want. And yet 1 Samuel is also a book about God's gracious plan not to give us the leader that we want, but the leader that we desperately need. Uh, if there's a constant in human leadership, it is that inevitably it fails us. Uh, you see that in uh, so many different ways in our society, the seemingly endless conveyor belt of prime ministers and premiers in, in our own country. Uh, if we uh, scan further afield, the, the, the lingering possibility of another Trump presidential run in the US, the uncontested rise and permanency of Xi Jinping, or the conflict in Ukraine and the brutal leadership driving that war. Uh, almost wherever you turn, you see examples of human leadership uh, that rises and falls uh, before our eyes. All, all human leadership has moments of light and hope, uh, but then the inevitable fading of that light as leaders fall short of what we hope for them, or at least what they have promised. It is hard and not over time to be cynical about human leadership in, in our era or really any era of human history. But as we look at 1 Samuel 2 this morning, I think if we're honest, it's not just the leadership of others that should cause us to be cynical. We should also be cynical about our own ability to lead, let our own lives, let alone other people's lives. Even the best of us lack the conviction to self-lead well. That's true not just of, uh, the, if you like, the top table leaders in our society, it's true of ourselves. And so what hope is there for a leaderless world? And I ask that, uh, knowing that the same is true within church leadership. It's not just the world out there that fails to lead well. Uh, all church denominations have stories of failed leaders and we shouldn't pretend otherwise. Uh, be it corruptions of theology or corruptions of life. Uh, the worldwide Anglican church increasingly fail, failing to be united and to lead faithfully. Or the celebrity pastors that we see in social media ensnared in, well, the old traps of sex and money and power. Again, not just in the outside world, but in the church world, what hope is there for leadership in a worldly church? Uh, the narrative of 1 Samuel that we're looking at together uh, begins 
with a story of a miraculous birth. We saw that a couple of weeks ago, the birth of a boy, Samuel. And, and as that simple domestic story unfolds, so too does God's answer to this leadership crisis. And as the answer unfolds, it does so in the most unlikely of places. Do you remember where we've been so far in the book? Uh, chapter 1, uh, we, we meet Hannah, a childless woman, weeping bitterly in the dark. That's, that's how the story starts. And, and yet then light and hope as the child is born, a son is given. And here also in this domestic moment is, is a moment of national hope. Uh, you may remember in the first week as we looked at this, we saw uh, what led up to the book of Samuel, the, bo the book of Judges, where, where there is no leader, there is no king, and everyone is doing as they see fit. Well, here in the midst of that, 1 verse 28, we read this, Samuel worships the Lord. His family uh, commit him to that cause in all his life. They give him to that service at Shiloh, the place where the living God meets with his people Israel. And... Uh, we're told he is to go there and to be trained to be a priest. He will intercede for this people who are leaderless, intercede with, uh, before God for them. But that's not how things appear as we rejoin the story. Have a look at verse 11 uh, and verse 12 of chapter 2. There's a flicker of light at the start. This family leaves Samuel at Shiloh as they promised to do and we're told the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. There's the light. Preparations for a leader have begun, but this light is very faint in comparison with the current leadership at Shiloh. Have a look at verse 12. Now the sons of Eli, here's my translation, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Uh, the light that uh, had shone as we see Samuel arrive on the scene fades into the darkness of this bankrupt next generation of leaders amongst God's people. Eli and his sons were meant to be the spiritual leaders uh, amongst Israel. And uh, if you jump forward to verse 27 of our passage, the, the section on the other side there, you'll, you'll see the reason they have this role, this privileged position that Eli and his house enjoy as priests at Shiloh is theirs primarily because God had revealed himself to Eli's father's house many years before in Egypt. Now, the reference here is to Aaron, uh, the first chief priest uh, amongst God's people in, in the days of, well, way back in Moses. Aaron and his sons had been promised that their descendants would be priests over God's house forever. They would have this role forever. And, and that role has now flowed down the family line uh, through Aaron's fourth son, Ithmar, all the way down to Eli and his sons. That's why they're in this position. And if you look at verse 28 of our passage, we're told that it's not a role that they had by merit. You didn't apply for this. You didn't hand in your CV. It was given to them by grace. And they were given absolutely everything they needed to fulfil this role. Such light and hope. But then with these sons, the light seems to go out. Verse 12 again. The sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Uh, the word worthless there, it, we've actually seen it before, back in chapter 1, verse 16. It's the Hebrew word belial. And I wonder if you remember when Hannah came to Shiloh for the first time, uh, uh, praying and weeping bitterly before the Lord, desperately praying, and, and Eli saw her and uh, mistook her as being drunk. Uh, and she, she counted with this, I am no daughter of Belial. I am not a worthless woman. 
I am not an evil woman. That's what the word means, worthless, evil. And so here we have the comparison. Here are Eli's sons. They are sons of Belial. The future of God's leadership is with people who are evil and worthless. And you see verse 12, what has led to their worthlessness? They did not know the Lord. Uh, they've abandoned uh, the foundational role that leaders of God's people had to know the Lord amongst God's people. And this decision not to know the Lord, I wonder if you sense in it the echo of uh, Pharaoh back in Egypt. We're back in Egypt again. You remember Pharaoh when Moses confronts Pharaoh? Who is the Lord that I should know him? Well, that's Eli's sons here. But that they don't know him is where things have gone wrong for Eli's sons. And indeed, it is where things go wrong for all leaders, including ourselves, in our world and in the church. Now listen to these words from Romans chapter 1 as it describes the problem of our world and the problem within our own hearts. Romans 1.21 For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. And then it gets darker still. Romans 1.28 They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. See the same problem? The sons of Eli have chosen not to know the Lord. And, and it's important to know when the Old Testament speaks about knowing the Lord, it's not just information that they chose not to know. They chose not to be in relationship with him. They chose not to walk with him. But as we heard in Hannah's prayer last week, you remember it, 2 verse 3, while they didn't know the Lord, the Lord knows. And what does he know about them? Well, have a look at verse 13 onwards. I'll read those verses again. Now it was the practice of the priests, that's Eli's sons, that whenever anyone, any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand and while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Here in this uh, precious moment where the priests were meant to bring the sacrifice to, to, to offer uh, that to the Lord so that the people could be forgiven. That was being cut off in the process so that, well, the priests could just feast on it. Greed, laziness, abusive power, the, the same old failures of any human leadership on any page of human history. Not satisfied with their privileged position, not satisfied with all that the Lord provided them, they fattened themselves with, the, uh, we're told in Leviticus, the very part of the offering that was meant to be given to God. Greed had taken the place meant for God's honour. And, and they wouldn't even do it themselves. They sent their lackey to do it. I wonder if you noticed that. O often uh, taking it before the fat was burned. And again in Leviticus we're told the, the fat was burnt in honour, in praise to God. Well, they dealt with that. And even at points we're told violently grabbing it off the Israelite worshippers. You imagine trying to worship in this context. Uh, you come to Shiloh with your offering and uh, it's snatched from your hand. Bankrupt, cruel leadership. What hope is there for worthy leadership with these worthless fools at the helm? 
I mean, it, it does look pretty dark for Israel, and yet very deliberately, I wonder if you noticed it as, as Bob was reading it, the, the narrative is written to keep showing us flickers of light in the midst of the darkness. Have a look again at verse 18. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. It's so quiet, almost unnoticed, and yet the progress is inexorable in contrast to Eli's sons. The boy is dressed for the part, we're told, verse 18, but more importantly, he is living out the part, worshipping before the Lord while all this chaos goes around. And don't miss the deliberate uh, but subtle progress. Back in verse 11, you remember he ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Now it's, it's verse 18, it's like the training wheels have come off. Now he is doing that for himself. And not only do we see a contrast between uh, the way Eli goes about his job and the, the sons, uh, the way sorry, Samuel goes about his job and the way the sons of Eli do, we also see a contrast between these two families. Eli's chaotic family and then the tender care of Samuel's family. Have a look at verse 19. Each year his mother, that's Hannah, made him a little robe and took it to him uh, when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife saying, may the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home and the Lord was gracious to Hannah and she gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. There's that light again. I mean, you couldn't have two different family situations, could you, than these two families? But, but don't miss the point. Look carefully at the way uh, Samuel's family is described here. What's most striking is not their activity, but what upholds their activity? It's the graciousness of the Lord that is doing this. It is the blessing of the Lord that is doing this. This is not so much about their merit, but his kindness. The point of the narrative is not so much about this family, but about our relentlessly good God, who even in the darkness of all that's happening at Shiloh is still at work. Hope is rising here in this scene against the gravity of human sin. Verse 21, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. And yet again, just as quick, our eyes leave the light and we're drawn away again to the darkness that seems to dominate this scene. Have a look at verse 22. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel. Uh, Eli has emphasised how old he is by this stage, but what's, not, what's also emphasised is he's not too old to hear. And literally, the, the verse says, Eli kept hearing. So it's not one report. He's heard this over and over again, what this next generation of priestly leaders were doing. And he kept hearing it, but he, he seems to have delayed speaking into the chaos. Now, it is entirely possible to overread what we're seeing here, but, but let me share with you the, the, the challenge I felt from this passage personally this week. Uh, Eli, as we've met him so far in 1 Samuel, has served God and his people well. He has served as a priest well. The, the accusations against his sons are not made about him, but I am left to wonder if he neglected his primary ministry, his children. It is possible to be wholeheartedly committed to the role of serving God and his people and to miss the role of serving our own family. And I have to say, looking at these verses and seeing that challenge, I felt that acutely myself this week. 
Now here's my question to myself. Do my children get my dregs when it comes to service? The things to focus on as a church family are, are almost endless and it has been uh, a unique season of uh, pressure and challenge. Is it possible that in the midst of that that I lose sight of, well, my immediate ministry in my own home? And I want to say that that challenge is not just for me, it is for us as a whole church family. It is possible to keep progressing ourselves in knowing the Lord and, and yet neglect our ministry to the next generation. We focus on other ways that they might grow in this world other than knowing the Lord. And it's easy for parents to, to get in the habit, I know this for myself, to think I'll outsource that part of it to others, kids church leaders, youth leaders, but we can't outsource it. And indeed, it's not just the role of parents, it's a whole church family project. But here's the other thing to factor into this sort of thinking. This is not to imply by any stretch that being diligent in our service within a church, being diligent even in our ministry to our children, will naturally mean, will automatically mean that they grow up in the Lord. Many faithful Christian parents carry the burden of children who are currently not walking with the Lord. I know that of my own parents. And remember the picture of Samuel's family. The key factor was not their diligence, but the graciousness of God. Let us, therefore, as a church, pray for those who uh, we know don't walk with the Lord at the moment. Let us remember that God plays a long game with these things. Uh, I have seen the joy of parents who have seen their children return to knowing the Lord decades after walking away from the Lord. Let us pray for that grace and that blessing for the families of our church family. Now back to our story. Verse 22 again. The sons, if it was possible for things to get darker, they do. Alongside greed, they've stooped even lower. Do you see it? Verse 22, sleeping with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And you've got the old triumvirate, sex, greed and power. The same old trick Satan uses to bring people down all over our world. He doesn't have to get more creative because we're just not that smart. Eli speaks finally. And we're told, though, they refuse to listen. Have a look at verse 23. He said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for that offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? Now, it is worth unpacking and applying what Eli says here in verse 25. And he goes on further. We see more of it in verse 29 where the messenger who comes to Eli says, Why do you scorn my sacrifice? That's the problem of Eli's sons. The reality is you and I still sin like Eli's sons do. And we know that we have a God who loves to forgive. So what's, Samuel talk, talk, what's Eli talking about here when he says it's not possible for someone to intercede who sins against the Lord? Well, the warning here is to, against deliberate, unrepentant sin that just mocks the sacrifice. To know God's grace, to know the difference, in our case, Christ's death is made to us, to know the forgiveness that comes from that, and yet deliberately keep on sinning with no plan to stop. That's Eli's son's. 
It is to mock the sacrifice of Jesus. It is to kick at the cross, as Eli's sons are doing here with the sacrifice. Reality is our God's grace is higher and wider and deeper and longer to forgive even our darkest moments. But he will not forgive the one who kicks and mocks his grace, who looks on the cross of Christ and by their ongoing unrepentant actions shows contempt for the price that's been paid. In the end, we're told Eli's Eli's son's hardness of heart was both their own choice and the judgment of God on that choice. 1 Samuel 2, as we've looked at it this morning, has shown us the reality of failed human leadership. But we've also seen that the problem is caused by this root issue, refusal to know the Lord. And that's not just a problem, as we've seen, for leaders. It's a problem for us all. But what hope is there in a world of failed leaders, in a world where we fail to even lead ourselves? Well, that's the other thing we've seen. Amongst the darkness of human self-leadership, God remains at work, bringing the leader we need. The signs have been there all the way through the narrative. They're like a signal fire in the darkness. So did you notice them? Verse 11, but the boy. Verse 18, but Samuel. Verse 21, meanwhile Samuel. Verse 26, now the boy. It's like the narrator is saying, don't miss it. God is at work in Israel, even in the darkness, even amongst this leadership chaos. And it's hardly noticeable at first. And I imagine the Israelites coming to worship at Shiloh in, in this period could have easily missed it for the darkness. But it's there, and the narrative won't let, it, let us miss it. And it won't let us, let us miss it, because as we read it, as people who know the unfolding story that comes from this, we know that the unfolding story of Samuel leads on to another story. I wonder if you heard it in the other reading that we had. Uh, listen to the echo of these two verses. Firstly, I'll read 1 Samuel 2.26 and then Luke 2.52. 1 Samuel 2, And the boy, Samuel, continued to grow in stature and in favour with the Lord and with people. That's the hope of leadership rising. And then hear this, Luke 2. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and with people. You see what God is doing? This story of God's response to failed human leadership is so much bigger than this scene at Shiloh. God has acted in history, not just to provide the the leader that Israel needed, but the leader we all need. Another boy will step onto the page of human history, and his arrival will be at first just as fate. His birth will be in a backwater barn. His life will be marked by rejection. His death, at the time, just a footnote in history, and his resurrection, barely an afterthought as we unwrap chocolate. But the gospel is written so that here in the dark we would see the light has come and in the words of John 1, the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, Christmas is coming yet again, can you believe it? And amongst the faux Christmas lights that will adorn our dark world, let us not miss this light. 1 Samuel 2 is part of the unfolding story that will be fulfilled in that first Christmas. And my prayer is that this Christmas it will thrill us again. And my prayer also is that for some it will be the first time they catch a glimpse of this light. I'll finish with these words from Isaiah 9 that we often read at Christmas. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness a light has dawned. 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gloriously good plan that defies the gravity of of our own sin and our own refusal to know you. Yet in spite of us, you have raised up a leader worth following, a leader who is not just our leader but our saviour. And so we pray, Father, for hearts that are humble before him, hearts that trust him rather than ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.